Chapter 12. I sat in my brown leather chair in the study at Phillipsburg, looking back with satisfaction on the last few months. It was my old TV watching time, and it seemed to me that I had every reason for Thanksgiving at the choice I had made. I had written the Latin American Bible Institute, La Puente, California, about Nicky's dream of the ministry. I made no bones about his past career, and I acknowledged frankly that he had not been in his new life long enough to prove himself. Would they, I asked them, accept him as a student on probation? They wrote back that they would. Not only that, but they found themselves so intrigued with this story of transformation in a boy from the streets that not long afterward they invited Angelo Morales to come there to school too. No, I reflected. There was no doubt in it. Buckboard and stagecoach doing well. Nicky and Angelo on their way to becoming ministers. Everything I saw pointed to the joyous completion of a task I had been called to assist in. I was not allowed to rest in this erroneous equilibrium for long. In the spring of 1959 came news that pulled me to my feet again and put me back on the path I had imagined would be a short one. Israel was in jail. And on no minor charge, he was in jail for murder. I drove to New York to see Israel's mother. My boy. He was so good for a while, said Israel's mother, rocking from side to side in her distress. He settled down, and when school start, he do his studies, but then the gang is start up again. Do you know what it is, the draft, Mr. Wilkerson? I did know what the draft was, when gangs were just starting or when their ranks were depleted for one reason or another. Any boy in the neighborhood was subject to one of the most vicious inventions of the fighting gang. He was simply drafted. He was stopped on the street and told that as of that moment he was a gang member and was expected to take part in the rumbles and obey all gang orders. If he refused, first, a simple beating followed. If he still refused, his thumbs or an arm was broken. If he refused again, his life was threatened. No one who knows the gangs takes such a threat lightly. Most boys join up. Israel was actually fired at a number of times before he went back to the gang. My boy, he's so scared, said Israel's mother. He go back. One night, there was a big fight. One of the other boys got killed. Nobody even tried to say that Israel was the one who shoot him. But he was with those killers, so they put him in jail. Israel's mother showed me a letter from him, much handled and spotted with tears. He said he was sorry about the tragedy for her sake. He didn't seem bitter. He talked about the day when he would be getting out. He even spoke about me, saying that he would be sad for the preacher when he finds out. Tell Davy I'd like to hear from him. What could we have done? How could we have kept Israel out of jail? Would it have helped to have me nearer to give advice and friendship? Would it have helped to take him away from this neighborhood, away from the gang that drafted him and the life that poisoned him? I asked Israel's mother this, and she shook her head, moaning a little with grief. Maybe, she said. I don't know. My boy was good for a while. Then he went back. He wanted to be good. Help him, Mr. Wilkerson. I promised her that I would do everything I could. To begin with, I said, I could at least send Israel some correspondence courses at the prison. Night and day, he was on my mind. I talked to Gwyn about him. I found myself asking people at the church what they would have done for him where I failed. I wrote him, but found that he could not write back. He could write only to his immediate family. Even his correspondence courses had to be sent through the prison chaplain. By early summer, when our Pennsylvania fields had turned green again, Israel was more in my mind than ever. At every opportunity, I went up to my mountain to pray for him. Further, I could find nothing to do. As I write this, Israel is still in jail. This favorite of all the boys I met. This one that I loved on sight. My sense of frustration is as torturing today as it was when I first realized my impotence in the face of his crime and his punishment. I am waiting. That is all. But in the meantime, at each appropriate occasion, I told his story to others, asking them what might have been done differently. Time and again, the same answer came back. Follow up. The flaw was in allowing these boys to be converted and then abandoning them. But to follow up meant to be on the scene. 
Some sort of turning point in my life was at hand, and then it happened. It was a hot August night, a year and a half after my first timorous trip to New York. I was standing in the pulpit at the Wednesday evening prayer service when suddenly my hands began to tremble. The thermometer read 85 degrees, but now I was shaking as if I had a chill. Instead of feeling troubled or sick, however, I felt a tremendous exhilaration. It was as if the Spirit of the Lord was drawing near in that room. I still don't know how I managed to get through the service, but before I knew it, and the congregation was filing out to go home, at 10.30 I closed up the church and left by the rear door. What happened next was quite simple, yet it was one of those vivid moments of truth that I shall never forget as long as I live. I went out into the backyard of the church. The moon was shining with an unusual brilliance. It bathed the sleeping town in its cold and mysterious light, but there was one spot in particular that seemed illuminated. In back of the church, there was four-acre field that had been planted in grain. The wheat now stood about a foot and a half high. I found myself propelled into the very center of this field of grain, swaying in the night breeze. And suddenly, I was quoting to myself the biblical figure of the harvest. Look, I tell you, look round on the fields. They are already white, ripe for harvest. The reaper is drawing his pay and gathering a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. That is how the saying comes true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap a crop for which you have not toiled. Others toiled and you have come in for the harvest of their toil. In my mind's eye, I saw each of the blades of wheat as a youngster on the streets of the city hungry for a new beginning. And then I turned and looked at the church and the parsonage where Gwyn and the three children were safe, happy, secure in their life in a country parish. But as I stood and looked at them, a quiet inner voice spoke to me as clearly as if a friend had been standing nearby. The church is no longer yours, I was told. You are to leave. I looked at the parsonage and the same inner voice said, This home is no longer yours. You are to leave. And in the same still, slow and inner voice, I answered, Yes, Lord, I shall go. I walked over to the parsonage after that, and there was Gwen waiting up. She was dressed for bed, but I could tell from looking at her that something had been happening to her, too. What is it, Gwen? How do you mean? There's something different about you. David, Gwen said. You don't have to tell me. I know already. You're going to leave the church, aren't you? You've got to leave. I looked at Gwen a long time before I answered her. In the moonlight that flowed into the parsonage bedroom, I could see the glint of a tear in the corner of her eye. I heard it too, David, said Gwen. We're going, aren't we? In the darkness, I put my arms around her. Yes, my dear one, we're going. The following Sunday was our fifth anniversary as pastor and family at the Phillipsburg Church. I stood in the pulpit that morning and looked out at the faces of the people we knew so well. My friends, I said, you are probably expecting me to give you an anniversary message. As you know, these have been five extraordinarily happy and wonderful years for me, for my wife, and for our children. Two of our babies were born here in Phillipsburg. We will always remember these years as a special time of close friendship. But an unusual thing happened last Wednesday night. Something that can have but one explanation. I then told the congregation of my experience in the grain field and of Gwen's amazing parallel experience inside the parsonage. I told them that I did not doubt this to be the voice of the Lord and that we would have to obey. I couldn't answer their questions about where we would go. I suspected it wouldn't be I suspected it would be New York, but I wasn't sure. All I knew was that we were to leave Phillipsburg now, without delay. What an amazing thing it is to live this life of the Spirit. That very afternoon when I returned to the parsonage, the telephone began to ring. One call was from Florida, from a pastor who said he couldn't shake the strong urging to telephone me and invite me to come and conduct a series of retreat meetings for him immediately. 
Another call came, then another, and before the day was over, I found myself booked for 12 weeks of speaking engagements around the country. Within three weeks, we had stored our furniture and moved from the parsonage into four rooms in my wife's parents' house. And then I took off. For the rest of that summer and for part of the next winter, too, I held meetings in various cities and towns across the nation. I had to laugh at myself. I measured the distance to each new place, not from where I happened to be at the moment, but from New York City. The town drew me like a lodestone. Whenever possible, I chose engagements that would take me near the huge, congested, anguish-filled city that I loved in such a special way. In the dead of winter, 1960, one of these engagements took me to Irvington, New Jersey. I stayed there with a pastor named Reginald Yake, and I told him, as I told everyone, about some of the experiences I had had in New York. Mr. Yake sat on the arm of his sofa for an hour, listening intently and asking questions. Dave, he said at last, it seems to me that the churches need a full-time worker among the gangs in New York. I wonder whether you would let me make a few phone calls to some friends in the city. One of the men he called was Stanley Berg, co-pastor of Glad Tidings Tabernacle on West 33rd Street near Penn Station. A meeting of interested clergymen was scheduled in the basement of Mr. Berg's church. It was an ordinary enough meeting. Someone read a letter from Police Commissioner Kennedy urging the churches to take a more vigorous stand in matters affecting young people. Mr. Berg stood up and spoke a little about the work I had already been doing. Then I got up and talked about the direction in which I thought work among teenagers might now go. Before we were through, a new ministry was born. Since his main purpose was to reach young boys and girls with the message of God's love, we called the new ministry Teenage Evangelism. I'd already been involved in this work, so I was voted director of the infant organization. A police captain named Paul Delina, a member of Mr. Berg's church, was voted secretary, treasurer. Poor Paul, he wasn't at the meeting to defend himself. Next came the question of money. That was handled very simply. We figured that for office space, printing salaries, and so forth, a budget of 20000 would be minimal, so we gave ourselves a budget of 20000 Of course, there was no actual cash represented, as our secretary-treasurer discovered a few moments later when Stanley Berg called him to inform him of his victory at the polls. Paul, said Pastor Berg, there's good news. You've just been elected treasurer of teenage evangelism. David Wilkerson is your director in this fight for young people, and you'll be glad to hear that you've got a budget of $20,000 for the first year. Captain Delena said, who is David Wilkerson? Who's got the books? And where is the money? Paul, said Pastor Berg, we have no books, we have no money, and David Wilkerson is a preacher from the hills of Pennsylvania who believes he belongs in New York. Paul laughed. You make it sound naive, he said. We are naive, Paul, said Pastor Berg, just about as naive as David was when he stepped up to Goliath with nothing but a sling, a pebble, and the conviction that he was on God's side. 